Hello, and welcome to the Reaction Podcast with me, Deputy Editor Rachel Cunliffe, and Reaction Editor Ian Martin. This week, we discuss the nail-biting developments of the Stoke and Copeland by-elections, the spiralling drama of President Trump's disgraced national security advisor, Michael Flynn, and the surprise reincarnation of Tony Blair. We start with Blair, who has compelled the British people to rise up and change their minds about Brexit. He claims people voted in the referendum without the knowledge of the true terms of Brexit. Ian, where do you want to start on this one? <laughs> Good question. I mean, I just, whenever I listen to Tony Blair make a, issue a warning about anything, I think if only, if only he could lay his hands on some sort of dossier that would warn us of the imminence of the, of the threat. <laughs> I think it's, it's actually, I feel, I can't even get annoyed about Blair's intervention. Some Brexiteers seem to be very wound up and accusing him of being anti-democratic and all the rest of it. I just think it's a slightly sad spectacle in that this politician who used to just command the stage and be the figure who defined uh, his age just now looks so diminished. And it's almost as though his entire worldview, pro-EU, pro open wide borders, globalisation, his whole worldview has been blown apart in the last um, couple of years. So my perspective, someone who remembers Blair and his pomp, is that uh, it just looks diminished. There is a case, though, I think, and I'm not defending his comments at all, uh, but I do think he probably feels like there hasn't been a strong opposition to Mm. Brexit or at least to uh, Theresa May's government's Brexit plans. And I think that is true. It's hardly like Jeremy Corbyn has been leading the charge to go for a, a soft Brexit or really making clear where the hard lines in the negotiations should be. We talked last week about how Corbyn didn't even really feature Mm in the debate at all and that point of view that globalized pro-trade pro-globalization pro-immigration that world view doesn't have a champion in britain at the moment blair was that champion before and he probably feels like there's a gap in the market i'm sure he does he's he, he was a wizard in the in the 90s he had extraordinary political skills for someone like myself who was a Blair skeptic at the time he was endlessly infuriating but you had to admire <laughs> you, you had to admire the skill with which he did it I always think the problem though with Blair is whenever he makes an, in, an intervention like this he's not quite as bad at it as Gordon Brown is but it just never seems to come with a proper full recognition of how a lot of what went a lot of what's happened recently has its roots in the failure of the Blair project. It has its roots in the end of boom and bust and the spectacular financial crisis which hit Britain harder than most other comparable countries because of what had happened in the previous 10 years, the banking system getting completely out of control and far too big. It has its roots in the open-door immigration policy in a kind of liberal elite contempt for views that were outside that Blairite perspective. So he's, he's, he's the father of, of, of modern politics. He's, he created or helped create quite a lot of this. So I, I can see the gap in the market, but I think probably the last person that voters are going to listen to on this stuff from in convincing large numbers 
is Tony Blair after Iraq, after the financial crisis, and after the immigration mess. I could be wrong, and he is... You talk to former Labour cabinet ministers and people who still uh, like Blair and look to him for, for counsel, and he's very fired up about this, and he sees it as his great mission uh, and had hoped by now that someone else would have emerged to fulfil the role that you rightly say needs filling. There is a gap in the market. But I just think with everything that's happened, I don't see how it's Tony Blair. Just um, It's just like it wasn't Hillary Clinton in... In 2016, in the US, I don't see how I don't see how Blair, when he's quite tainted, uh, is the answer. We'll come on to Hillary Clinton later in the podcast, uh, but we've talked a lot about how the UK is handling the fallout from Brexit. But there's been some news this week that sort of implies that the EU is also struggling and having a bit of an identity crisis. Uh, there are reports earlier the week in the week that Italy is pushing for a two-speed EU that would enable greater federalism among mm. core members, which is ironically quite similar to what David Cameron was pushing for <laughs> in the renegotiations and was adamantly refused. Um, and then uh, yesterday reports uh, a leaked document from the EU that is bizarre in that it says that even once Britain has left the EU, uh, that we will, we will still be bound by the common fisheries policy mm. and basically they're not giving us our fishing waters back. And that was obviously a very provocative issue during the campaign. So it just sounds like the EU really doesn't know how to handle Brexit. Are yeah. they going to punish us? Are they going to try and create the kind of system that we were pushing for originally? What? Where are they on this? It's a very good question. I don't think there is a definitive answer you you see in that yes it's it's must be very frustrating for david cameron looking at the failure of his negotiation where he didn't ask for enough but where he did try and politely get the european union the european establishment to wake up to the scale of the challenge and try and design what should have been designed a decade ago a proper genuine two-speed europe with an integrated block clustered around the currency and then an associate member status for those who wanted a, a, a looser confederation or a looser relationship with the European Union. feels as though that ship has sailed a bit and that the Italian effort seems too little, too late. You've also got the re-emergence of the Greek crisis over the bailout. You've got the elections coming in France. You've got... Uh, going into an election in, in Germany in which Merkel is in a degree of trouble that we'll see how see how much so there's this there's this whirlwind coming. So I think in news terms, I think everyone is just we're just gonna have to go through the next six months, six to eight months, see what the state of play is at the end of um, at the end of October, who Britain will be negotiating with. And I think that it's um it's all of that illustrates that it's a block that it's just it's just not built to last. It's not a sustainable project in its current model, but very difficult to see equally how it can be coherently reformed. Now, Blair did say one thing that I actually agree with, and I think you're probably going to disagree with me on it, so this is why I'm going to mention it, which is um, he criticised uh, Theresa May on, on the hard Brexiters for their accusations that people who voted Remain or are now still pushing for a softer exit are in some ways unpatriotic mm. um, and 
I am always very cautious any time that word patriotic gets thrown around because it means so many different things to different people. And I think yeah. you can love your country in a variety of ways and people have different ideas of what, about what's best for the country. And there has been this sense from hard Brexiteers that not only has the referendum happened, but that any attempt to have any kind of relationship with Europe is in some way a betrayal of Britain. And I wanted to ask you about that because it seems very similar to me to the Scottish nationalists who are saying that anyone Scottish who does not support independence somehow isn't a true Scot. I know that's something that Mm. has occasionally been said to Mm. you. Good comparison. Yeah, I I, I do... I do think there are several things at play here, though, is that, is that moderate leavers, uh, people like me, who voted to leave, to leave the European Union but don't think we're leaving Europe because that's a geographical impossibility and I'm culturally European, but I just don't think the European Union works. The hope was, possibly in vain, that there would be an alliance between moderate leavers and moderate remainers and that the extremes, you'd then force to the extremes, the, the, the hardliners, um, the UKIPers, and on the other extreme, the slightly demented Remainers who think that it's the end of the world rather than just the breakup of a 40-year like, political arrangement. Like Tony Blair. <laughs> like Tony Blair. Though Tony Blair, of course, is a chameleon and a, can, is a chameleon and can range across the political landscape, so we'll, we'll see. That didn't really happen partly because Theresa May, who was a Remainer, remember, had to prove her Brexit credentials. There's also something else going on, which we're going to see a lot more of, is that the the government has to run, if you like, a false flag operation on negotiations. It has to keep the other side guessing. So I think the, the, the basis on which they're operating and preparing to negotiate once Article 50 is triggered next month is prepare for, I don't like the term hard Brexit, but prepare for a full, clean, hard Brexit, whatever you call, whatever you want to call it, and then try and work back to a softer Brexit or some kind of compromise on specific industries, some sort of deal or arrangement. So you're at least prepared, you're preparing to walk out completely and preparing for that contingency, but you've got, to, you're, you're looking for some sort of deal. That's probably the most sensible basis on which to prepare I would have thought David Cameron didn't do that so the European Union wasn't convinced he was prepared to leave if he didn't get a proper negotiation I think some of them still aren't convinced Precisely. Yeah, it's extraordinary leave. some people you know, in other parts of Europe still don't really seem to understand that it's, um, that it's happening so it's all it's unfolded in a way which does not hasn't, hasn't really, it, the situation hasn't lent itself to a compromise deal between moderate leavers and moderate remainers I do think ultimately longer term that's where the the answer lies and that involves probably 70 to 80 percent of British public opinion Um, but it's going to depend what kind of deal can be done and what scope there is from compromise for compromise and what's offered by the European Union which for the reasons we discussed a moment ago it's, it's difficult to know what Britain will get and it's difficult to know precisely who we'll be negotiating with. So all this talk of Blair's return and also of UKIP uh, brings us on nicely to the two by-elections taking place in Stoke and in Copeland. Both seats were previously held by Labour and the by-elections were triggered by MPs resigning after Jeremy Corbyn's lack of leadership just 
became too much for them. <laughs> uh, UKIP leader Paul Nuttall is throwing everything he has into Stoke, but his campaign has had a few setbacks. Yep. How do you think he's doing? Well, you say he's throwing everything he's got into it. That doesn't seem to be very much. I mean, it's been... It's a classic well, British by-election. He, he, he moved there, that's right. <laughs> or he, he pretended to move oh, there. But it's unclear whether he registered to vote there in time. And a pretty basic thing you should do is, if you're standing for election, is be able to, to vote for yourself. Um, no, he's doing appallingly badly. It's not preordained, is it, that he'll, that he'll lose because... Who knows whether the voters of Stoke are paying attention in sufficient numbers to what's actually going on in the by-election. It doesn't look very good for him. It doesn't look very good for the leadership of UKIP. My view is longer term, I think, depending on the Brexit deal, ultimately UKIP are, are sunk, but they've had an amazing impact, extraordinary influence They've remade British politics, but I'm not a fan of UKIP, but it's I think it's worth just acknowledging that the referendum wouldn't have happened without them, without the referendum, which they didn't win, but uh, without the referendum, no Brexit. So Nigel Farage really did change history. So I think that UKIP had two things holding it together that you've both mentioned. One was one core aim and core message which was get Britain out of Europe and they didn't have to worry about any of the other difficulties and compromises that come with forming a a usual political party platform because they had one clear aim Uh, and the other is Nigel Farage himself who is say what you like about him he is a force of nature Mm. um, and he has the kind of personality and ability to hold a room and and just connect even if you disagree with what he's saying it's very powerful uh they've lost him to i think the american tv network or the speaking circuit or now he's a surrogate for donald trump what used to be Um, called the right wing entertainment complex (laughs) there's actually a name for it there is yes yeah i can think of a few other people who'd be on that um (laughs) but they've, they've lost him and they've also lost their core aim in that britain voted to leave now i know now they're going for a we're the party that's really going to get britain out of europe but it does kind of seem like well the the tories are actually doing it even labor has finally decided that the brexit is is happening after a identity Mm. crisis that lasted forever um so does ukip have anything more to offer not really i just can't i can see the short-term point that if they can somehow get their act together there is a residual vote there there's a loyal seems to be loyal chunk of voters, probably about 8 to 10% of the country, they can say to those voters, someone needs to keep an eye on Theresa May. She voted for Remain. Is she ent- entirely trustworthy? Can she deliver on reducing immigration? But once you get beyond... I, I could be completely wrong, but once you get beyond 2018, 2019, 2020, and the, the deal is done, Brexit has happened... And there are so many other things that need to be talked about, the NHS, uh, school reform, injecting the UK economy with, with more dynamism to take um, uh, to essentially take those opportunities that I think flow from Brexit. All of that becomes more important than a single-issue protest party that, that won. I mean, that's the, that's the problem. Unlike the SNP, the SNP grew after the Scottish referendum, but it had it had lost the vote and was pushing for another go. 
UKIP succeeded and rendered themselves, I would argue, longer-term irrelevant. But we'll see. And they've also lost their authenticity a little bit, and that's why I think the stories this week have been particularly damaging, one being that Paul Nuttall uh, did or didn't live in Stoke and didn't didn't mm. live in the flat that he said he did, or he did live there, but only recently. Um, so he kind of spun that one. And the other, that he had claims on his website that he'd lost close friends in the Hillsborough disaster, and it turned out that he hadn't. And that's really capitalising on people's grief for political gain. And I'm not saying that he's the only politician who's ever done those things, but he is coming from a party that is has at its core, we're not politicians, we don't spin mm. things, we're authentic British people, and we just tell things like they are. And and he didn't. So I think that there's a, as well as the irrelevance of the fact that UKIP, as you said, won, there's a, uh, they've, they've, they've lost the the uh, bonus points they got for not being like other politicians. And speaking of people who present themselves as <laughs> not being politicians but have won elections... Yes, we can't conclude the podcast without talking about, yet again, President Donald Trump. Uh, the week began with his national security advisor, who was forced to resign after it emerged that he had discussed US sanctions against Russia with the Russian ambassador uh, and then lied about it and also lied about it to the FBI. Um, in response to the spiralling coverage, uh, Trump called a press conference during which he went on a bizarre and frankly in my opinion unhinged attack on the media <laughs> did, did you watch it all the way through i did it was gripping it was it was, it was as, gripping it was as long as a as a as a feature film and twice as entertaining as most hollywood <laughs> films uh, but with this tragic 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 comedy would be comic if it wasn't comedy. real <laughs> exactly it uh, what it made me think is that I mean, things have think, politics has sped up so much. So this is all happening very, very quickly, and there's been a fashion in recent months, particularly on the centre right. Well, the centre right has been split. I'm thinking. Of, I'm thinking of Britain, but also in American commentary and American circles, with some conservatives or conservatives undecided about whether or not to give the guy a chance. And there's a there's a sophi allegedly sophisticated analysis which just says, well, look, he's a bit of a political genius beyond all the the carnival huckster stuff, and he'll appoint good people. He's run businesses, therefore he'll be a good national chief executive. He'll be competent, uh, and this stuff will connect with the people that voted for him. That that school of thought is not looking particularly <laughs> no. particularly robust or credible if after you're the events of the last week. If you're listening to the Reaction Podcast, don't give Donald Trump a chance. <laughs> <laughs> well, I well as you know, I feel slightly conflicted about this just because he he is president. I think it is possible that on the econo on, on, on in terms of economic reform and economic dynamism, it is it is perfectly possible. There's a scenario in which the US economy really booms and surges in the next couple of years. But he's not he, he's, he's certainly not delivering in, on, in terms of the other side of the bargain, which is just basic competence and, and coherence. The press conference was, uh, even by his standards, was all over the shop. And just, I mean, there were people and various news outlets attempted to just put together lists of the 
the the weirdest aspects of it or the weirdest outbursts. But I mean, you could have put together the whole thing. The whole thing. <laughs> in the end, in the end, we on the site just I just decided rather than attempting to make sense of it, I just said, well, just just read just read this whole seventy three minute thirteen and a half thousand word transcript of him burbling on. It was uh, for someone who loves America as I do and is a great fan of Ronald Reagan or Harry Truman or Lincoln or or Teddy Roosevelt, it's just distressing to see this. It, it is a someone, I think, James Olley, who's on our advisory board, tweeted that it was the network, it was the equivalent of network, great film before your time, which illustrates the <laughs> meltdown of television news and predicts a lot of the future and terms of how television news will develop film from the 70s which involves a tv host going into meltdown and it's a it's a perfect comparison actually it is it is this is this is the political version of that network uh meltdown well i'm not conflicted about about what he is going to do for america um and as as you know i i warned during the campaign as many others did that he was utterly incompetent and dangerously so just to recap we are not talking about his policies here we're not even talking about the muslim ban which um by the way he's not going to fight in court probably because he knows that he'll lose it um what we have that kicked all this off is a member of his team having a conversation which may or may not actually have been illegal but was definitely inappropriate improper and undermined current u.s policy at the time ethically ethically very questionable he had this conversation before trump was inaugurated Mm. so obama was still president uh lied about it to the media multiple times uh according to reports lied about it to the fbi which is also a felony um and then lied about it so Mike Pence says to Mike Pence, the vice president, um, the White House was warned about it, but didn't know about it, but would have, according to Trump, would have been okay with it because it was the right thing to do. But then he lied about it. And so they had to force him to resign. But it's all the media's fault. And the the, the news is fake, but the leaks are real. Uh, and according to the Trump team now, the real issue here is not that this uh, Trump... Uh, surrogate supporter advisor uh, had this ethically compromised conversation and the real problem is that uh, it, it, it was it was leaked and that's what they want investigated not the content of the conversation um michael flynn is by the way the third trump advisor <laughs> who has been forced to resign due to inappropriate conduct with um russian officials mm. all of this is going on this is in the first three weeks of the administration Surely at this point, it doesn't matter whether his economic reforms might be good for America or not. This is either incompetence or a conspiracy. Well, when you put it like that, I admit, it doesn't look very good, does it? Doesn't. It, doesn't, it doesn't sound very good. Yeah, I, I think it is. Everything, all bets are off. The, uh, all bets are off. It, will the guy even last till the end of the year? I mean, we're at the end of week four. Will he, uh, you know, will he will he make it through through to the end of March? I'm just I'm just flagging up the possibility that while this gets journalists very excited, and I I do think there are basic issues of competence, and I find the Russian stuff. I think you're absolutely right; it's all very troubling. However, it, it, there is the possibility that the economy booms and that he 
connects with the kind of voters who won him uh, the election in the Midwest, if he delivers economically quite a lot of this noise and this stuff that voters, I think, see as just factor in and have priced in as show business madness, which they observed during the campaign, if he delivers on the economy, they might forgive him all this other stuff and he could um, he could survive longer than people think. But I think what's most revealing and fascinating about the events of the last week is the way in which parts of the American state, what's termed the deep state, are reasserting themselves. And it's not just about uh, constitutional checks and balances, but it's deep in deep in that Washington undergrowth. The intelligence communities. Yeah, not just intelligence, in all sorts of agencies. Uh, people are, you know, not prepared to, not prepared to take it. I'm, you know, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore, <laughs> as the main character in, in Network says. That kind of brings us on to the media, um, because Trump's press conference was... Well, ostensibly, it was about introducing his new pick for Labour secretary, but mm. really, it was about trashing the media. Um, so another couple of key moments, him shouting, quiet, 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 um, refusing to let a journalist finish his question, <laughs> um, being called out uh, by a journalist on a fact that he'd said that was wrong about having the biggest electoral college yeah. landslide, and then saying, well, somebody gave me that number, it doesn't matter anyway, um, a, a sort of a very aggressive attack on a, a, a Jewish reporter who asked him, I think, quite a, a nuanced question about anti-Semitism, um, asking for a friendly reporter, basically talking about how the press are unfair and, and, and all of that. As I think the American journalists have been in a bit of a tailspin about how to cover this, um, do you have any any suggestions, any tips for what the media can can? Do. I mean, clearly, um, any time there's a negative story, it enrages him and it's fake news. We now know that fake news, when it's written by Donald Trump in, in capital letters, means news that Donald Trump didn't like. Um, what what can they do? What is, what is the answer? This is primarily an American question because... Well, he, he, was, he railed against the BBC as sure, well. But pretty, but pretty much what people say and think about this outside the US is, um, you know, is, is interesting, but not necessarily going to have, uh, have influence. This is primarily about the American, uh, American domestic media. I think it's important to separate news and opinion. I think shouting at him is not really going to convince many of the voters who voted for him not going to change many minds I think this is about basic old fashioned reporting which you can already start to see Washington Post has been doing extraordinary things, the Wall Street Journal had a very interesting story this week about intelligence briefings and the intelligence community holding back information from Trump because they suspect that he's leaky and the New York Times had uh, reports that um other Trump aides may have had contact with Russia. That was investigative yeah. journalism. I mean, as well. I have issues with the New York Times and a whole range of other issues. But I think, <laughs> but I think broadly, broadly, it's going to come down to old-fashioned, proper, straightforward reporting of what's going on, um, and just holding him to account and making you know, media media playing its role doing that. Which 
brings us neatly onto the future of reaction, doesn't it? And I just wanted to say just a little bit at the end of this podcast about what we're doing next on the site, which is that if readers, listeners subscribe to our email, which is your fantastic daily email on the, on the news and politics and ideas, and if they also then get my weekly global political newsletter they'll see that we're moving from this week to a model in which we're asking people to support us with uh, a weekly or monthly donation, small amount, which is really just all about us ensuring that we can grow reaction and that we can pay writers and we can pay to expand our coverage. And it's clear with the way that the world is at the moment, just post-Brexit, post-Trump, there is there's a need for smart, hopefully intelligent, hopefully amusing commentary, which illuminates a lot of this and does it from our perspective is is pro market but broad church and we think that there's there's room for reaction to grow. So I just want to say thank you to those who have already subscribed. Thank you to those who are reading us and if you can go to the subscribe page on the website and sign up. Your support would be very much appreciated and allows us to produce more journalism. Thank you for listening to the Reaction Podcast. If you've enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and please rate us five stars. You can read more from Ian Martin and me, Rachel Cunliffe, on the Reaction website at www.reaction.life, where you can also now subscribe to be a Reaction member. Reaction.